So, short, short time ago, uh, there was a volcano and that, uh, that volcano went off. Mm, this was a short time ago, um, around the time, it was around the same time when the, the first cities were being built, um, when the first laws, written laws were being made and, and, um, and sort of pressed into clay tablets in the earliest forms of writing, it was when the first big states were arising with one language and one big monotheistic God in order to ensure the first contracts that were all also made. And uh, people were saying, hey, we could own other people. And if we owned them, then uh, these little pyramids, we could build really big pyramids. We could make massive ones. So this was a short, short time ago. Uh, meanwhile, in Queensland, uh, there was a volcano. That volcano went off and completely changed that place forever. And uh, in the ashes afterwards, uh, country grew a jungle, a big, thick, rich lush jungle that's still in flux this dreaming action this creation action there is still is still in flux still occurring and when you go there you get a sense that you could fall through parts of it and into somewhere else and so i'm talking to a man from that jungle today danny mellor who um performs some amazing acts of ceremony and 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 just uh beautiful collective magic uh collectively i mean with himself and right back through all of his ancestors from that place who are still um, remarkably present in his work um, and we're going to talk about his eye today and uh, the nature of time and space and place and creation and relation and uh, all good things in the world um, artist Danny Mellor. How you going, Bara? Tyson, thanks for that introduction. Hello, great to be with you. Um, Tyson, my name's Danny Mellor. That's a, 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 the sort of breadth of what you were talking about is kind of what I try to bring into the scope of my work. My family are from North Queensland. My mother's grandfather's, grandmother's family are from the Atherton Tablelands in that area, the Njonji people. And a lot of my work takes place around that sort of area and looking at, as you say, that history, 
the deep history of that space and how that area can then translate its own stories um, as country into imagery that can be read in very particular kinds of ways. We've often talked over the years about a number of different things and it's this fairly broad ranging conversation that we have. Um, it's one of those things where it's almost, it goes back in time, it comes forward in time. But it's a, a kind of a, a conversation we've had that deals with things that in fact are really timeless. And so um, what I'm hoping to do today is just dig down a little bit more into that um, to talk with you about that idea of seeing and perceiving, but also because you have a, a great sort of perception around time and how that relates to imagery and the way we as people interact with that world of temporality, but also was that world that sits beyond temporality as well. Yeah, well, that's just it. And we've spoken about this before, the way um, most of the time in our Aboriginal languages in Australia, we, we don't have separate words uh, for time and place. So time and space might be the same thing, you know, even if this is expressed as a suffix, you know, at the end of a word, it'll be the same one, you know, and often those, uh, those concepts merge together in, in um, ways that are strange to a, you know, Western educated, industrialized, rich, democratic sort of lens on the world. Um, yeah, so we, I guess we're both in our different ways. Uh, work at the edge of things there at uh, translating uh, concepts of time and place and um, you know all the very problematic things arising in this constantly shifting present um, that we're occupying and in which we are occupied. Yeah one of the things that I'm really strikes me and this I see this in your writing as well and research um, is this idea uh, that I'm hoping we can talk about today is resonant memory. And resonant memory um, takes its place in, in a sense, I guess, among those elements that we remember about country, those elements we remember about the past, but also how that translates into a perception around present time mm. um, and how you've spoken about it, I, I recall as a, a way or of a shape and I've often thought about the shape of memory and how yeah. that can actually determine in a way perception and how we build up an understanding of those layers of history in the past, but also how it's contextualized then in the present as well. Um, it's it kind of, it's occurred to me, it's almost like it's a semiotics where you read something and it gives something in particular kind of shape or interpretation. Yeah. So, I guess in terms of the way our thinking has dovetailed around that, it's the understanding, in fact, that mm. temporality of time brings with it a, a rich tapestry of insight and perception, both into history, but also into relationships between people. You can't engage with memory without engaging with a theory of time. And in our way, that, that is also a theory of place and space. Um, you know, it, it is very difficult. Um, there's a lot of uh, evolutionary theorists and evolutionary biologists right now. Um, they're quite aware that there are uh, there are gaps in their theory that they haven't they haven't quite explained yet. They haven't quite been able to show 
um, I heard one of them saying the other the other night, um, we can't really show exactly <laughs> uh, what accelerates the process, you know, in that amount of time uh, from a shrew turning into a bat. You know, so there are they, they know there's something in there. They know there's some kind of X factor um, happening in there and they can't quite get to it. And there's there's a general idea you, you see more and more uh, evolutionary biologists, especially starting to talk about collective consciousness. They talk they're talking about that there's something about you know, and, and the only language they have for this kind of thing is racial memory and things like that. And so they're looking at uh, potentially, so what's the collective consciousness, collective unconscious, they're getting real Jungian about it too, weirdly. <laughs> Evolutionary biologists with that scientific method, they're getting all Jung on us. Um, but yeah, so they're looking at this, they're starting to talk about a collective unconscious, a collective consciousness of humans, a racial memory. And you see more and more on the woo-woo side of it, they're really expressing something that's uh, that idea of morphic resonance, whereby similar things, you know, things that share a similar shape in creation, share, um, share memory and share consciousness across that form, that collective form. And it's different in our way because it's, it's more diverse than that. You're not just you're not sharing memory with the things that are similar to you, because that would just be entropy that would produce systemic stagnation in spirit. You know, for us, we're looking at so much more, you know, it's uh, <laughs> all of our objects, you know, in which we store memory and have memory, um, you know, these these sentient things, you know, and rocks and plants and everything else we are. Um, you know, connected in some very vibrant ways there that really sort of challenge, you know, current conceptions of time and space, and even time space, space time, <laughs> as the physicists are, are thinking of it. It's interesting, isn't it? And when you were talking about that, it occurred to me, it's kind of a haptic memory as well. Yeah, it's very much based in, in certainly, in, in, I guess, in consciousness, but also in feeling. And um, one of the things that I, I find fascinating, particularly um, about, I, I guess it's the, my research, but also that broader research of, of imagery and, as you say, objects, how we then receive them from the past in our present day mm. and how we make sense of them through relationship. And I guess in terms of um, the things that we've spoken about, I'm, I'm considering specifically uh, photographic images, you know, like family yeah. images, the archival image. Yeah. Um, the difference in, I guess, in some Western or, or cultural traditions is that imagery, as you say, is bound up in object. What's very important in the Western classical tradition mm. of academia is the archetype, as the archive. Mm. And oh, how, that's that's a that's a record that's yeah, bagged record. and tagged and labeled and kept. Yeah. And must not be touched, must not be altered, must not be changed. Well, it's, it's or engaged those, with. But it has its own value. And in that sense, not as living knowledge, though. Not as well. No, it's a from their tradition. Is not, as you say, something with consciousness, but it's what you bring to it as well, I think. So you and I would approach an archive 
as a, a kind of a living memory of things. And I kind of see that life being, um, being embedded almost, in both in the, the object or the image, mm. but also in the story around that. So there's a, a whole sort of range mm. of responses and it's almost like a, um, an incredible well, if you like, of, of things and, and memory and story that is then retold through image and object. And that's well. Look, here's where well, here's where I need to, here's where I need to learn from you, because from me and my ontology and in my practice, image and object are are, are different, because mm -hmm. the haptic, the haptic uh, memory and haptic knowledge and cognition that you mentioned before, you're obviously working with image in that way. But for me, that's completely different. So I see those three spears you've got in the background there. Are they, I can't quite see them. Is that stone tip? No, they're, um, they're wooden. They're from APY country. Ah, they're from sweet. an elder out there who, who gifted them to me, which was an amazing gesture. So for me, the, those spears, um, which are quite a bit shorter from, <laughs> I do like a short spear, <laughs> but that's, that's like a, a hangover from, uh, uh, from southern ancestry <laughs> um previously but um you know my my practice is with very long spears mm. you know that you throw right from the end of them not not from halfway which I, I find a lot of people down here are throwing from halfway along the spear yeah i don't know how because you're not you're just not getting you're not getting the leverage there no that's but right. surely you throw from the end of the spear um, like you put your finger, if you haven't got Woomera, you put your finger right there at the end of the spear and you throw like that and I you twist those, your body in I that think way. Those ones behind me are used with the Woomera too. Yeah. 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 Specifically, but it's, uh, but yeah, it's this relation with the objects and, and this cultural and place based way of interacting with them. Um, for me, um, that's very different from image. So for me, the image, image is part of the spirit of the thing. You know, and, and, and a photo of you contains spirit, like part of your spirit, you know, and the more you replicate that, it's a drain on that spirit. You know what I mean? If you replicate, replicate the image of something infinitely, then you can basically just extract all of the spirit from that thing and have it there in the cloud um, is, is, is my, my feeling around it. And it's because when you're working with image, you're working in that abstract space. You know that that space where you are turning something tangible from this world into a metaphor and working with it over in that place of spirit or that abstract space of thought and then you're supposed to close the loop and bring that ceremonial sort of pattern back into reality here for increase but for me it's a weird thing when you're working with image you're not working over in that space of imagination spirit whatever you want to call it you're not working in the abstract, you're working in the tangible with abstracts. So you're making spirit real right here with an image. So that's why if you're doing like sand talk, like you're drawing something in the sand or you're making an image, usually that protocol is to wipe that out, obliterate it immediately after that ritual is done. Yeah. You know, you can't leave it there because it does things here. It's, it's not spirit and it's not tangible. It's something both. So there's something about image for me in my way of looking at the world, which is different from, but you work with image as an object, you know, so you're constantly, I talked about that place you're from, which is a place that's in flux, 
you know, yeah. there's so much of Australia that's ancient landscapes, like ancient, ancient, ancient. But that one that you're from is a new landscape, you know, and it's and it's still in flux. And somehow you're working with image, but as a tangible, like a concrete metaphor. Yeah. And you have a haptic relation to it. But I, I, I can't, that's where I'm going to have to learn from you is how, how the haptics of imagery work and how you're working that with your camera. Sure. Um, what, what brings it alive in the same, in the sense that I think you're talking about for me is that initial engagement with the actual or the physical reality of that rainforest. And so that whole journey that unfolds with me going up creeks or into valleys and up the sides of mountains and, and photographing, mm. it, it's, it's almost that walk for me brings those images alive um, mm. that are taken. So they have an embedded experience. Mm. And because it's almost like you've walked through those creeks, you've walked along, or, along that track, you've breathed that air, you know, you've mm. basically struggled to get these images into the camera. Um, there's a whole kind of experience of, um, it's almost like human endeavor but yeah. it's an overwhelming experience too, because it's the rainforest is um, it's achingly beautiful, but at the same time, as you know, it has this sort of this edge. Yeah, um, you can't really take any kind of safety for granted, because um, the counterbalancing that beauty is the, the very knowledge that in fact things in the rainforest can have quite a short life cycle, and that's because it feeds on itself. Yeah, regenerates itself, and um, when you're there, you are essentially part of that, a really interesting and bigger cycle of nature. That's it. So it pays, it, it's very important to be conscious of your surroundings and where you're putting your feet. And, and it's, it's just very simply because, you know, mm. the rainforest can be quite a dangerous place. Mm. What, what comes from that space, though, with the imagery are almost like visual stories. So it's a narrative not simply of a time and a walk or an experience. It's almost a narrative of that space. You're capturing something in a sense and bringing it back for people to see. So I kind of tight cycles in the now of time, but then also deep cycles whereby you can bring that haptic relation of the, your archival, you know, ancestral images as well, yeah. uh, physically into yeah. that place that's right and um it becomes a really important process i think because you're you're kind of imaging i image with with infrared and and so i'm very aware that through it's almost like a, a, a scientific methodology if you like of of bringing to life those invisible wavelengths mm. rather than simply visible wavelengths and through the imagery speaking in a very direct way mm. about a space which was previously unseen. Mm. So when, when you take a photograph and then print that, um, you're essentially bringing almost an invisible world into the world of visible light. So for that, it's a really powerful symbol for me of bringing back that idea of experience and the unseen to then share um, something that can be seen and experienced as well. And it's also a way of talking about this idea of ancestral presence as well, where um, 
it's it's kind of one of those things that we understand to be a very real and tangible thing mm. sense that people uh, people are in the landscape or country you know essentially mm. forever that's our place and so um with this work what i begin to see is that you're coming back to this idea of the shape of memory um you're recalling shapes you're recalling human experience you're recalling relationships both to country but also to people as well and so when when we begin to well my understanding around imagery as opposed to or including objects is that they are things to be read but things to be um, experienced and appreciated as well so there's, there's a story in a relationship with anything regardless of um, whether it's image-based or in fact it's an object mm. and i think there's a kind of a, a profound connection that those things mm. have with the space of the world well look let's let's look at what a story is for a start because that's that's the that's the key you know so your story is 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 a um it's a psychotechnology really and it, it's a psychotechnology it's a, a a way of um a way of sequencing metaphors uh ritually that allows you to inhabit the ontology of of a different set of relations you know so you uh, so you can in, inhabit you completely inhabit that ontology for the time that you're in the story and hearing the story or engaging with it, or even that's what we're doing when we're walking too. when you're walking in those places, you're inhabiting that story. Yeah, uh, that that story. No, you're not inhabiting the story. The story that you're walking there is allowing you to inhabit the ontology of that place. Um, and that's what brings your lens, which brings us back to that infrared too. Because I think that's really important because it's that dreaming layer that that's it's that that's the thing. That's the substance that I recognized the first time I saw your work and I called you up all excited years ago. Remember our first yarn? Yeah. <laughs> and I said, ah, it's that snake eye. You you have that and specifically the carpet snake eye there from that place. Um, and, and I knew that from my experience of being in that place and 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 how that spirit of that place uh, threw me into that and scared the crap out of me. I, I, I lived there for about a year and then I left straight away after that. It was, I, I, I probably should have stayed <laughs> and been with that, but I felt like it was out of my pay grade. I was like, why, why, why does this keep happening to me? I'm going to move again. Um, so I went down the hill <laughs> well, I and remember, stayed in Cairns. I remember when you first wrote about my work. Yeah. And, and you use that expression snake high and i yeah i found that deeply appropriate it was yeah probably the first time i'd, I'd sort of thought about it around the edges um in terms of how how would you know is there a way you can bring in a different kind of perception with a camera that's been converted to infrared and yes mm. it was but the way that you couched it in those words and spoke about it as a kind of um really important interaction with the world through um these, these sort of really big ideas if you like of, of the dreaming and those stories and specifically mm. for that region in north queensland the carpet snake which is as you know the, the mm. rainbow and so it it 
really brought together a few, how can you call them? Almost like big strands of story yeah. that were yeah. dreaming, that were about perception, that were about seeing, I guess, almost beyond the obvious in the visible light spectrum and taking it then into a different sort of world where you're registering uh, things like temperature, um, yep. whole different range of um, That's it. light. And this is what really excited me when I, when, you, when I read that article you wrote, which is like, oh, this is actually quite amazing because Tyson gets it. And I think what helped you get it was the fact that you had actually spent that time in Karanda. Um, and yeah. experience that rainforest in that way. Um, and it goes back to this idea of um, it's achingly beautiful, but at the same time, um, you're kind of quite aware that there's a, a different layer um, of, it's almost danger, I think. And I think it, it is danger. It is. Um, that sort of counterbalances, you know, those feelings of overwhelming, oh, this is so wonderful. It's, it's peril if, if you're an outsider, it's terrifying. You know, remember that time you showed me a, a, a photo of that story place and I went, oh, oh, a terrible place. <laughs> like beautiful, powerful, terrible for me. Like, I can't go there. That I might not come back. And this I'll, is, I'll just be um, a living ghost if I go there. <laughs> you know you're, what I mean? You're, you're, and you're the place will leave me up because I'm not of the place. You can yeah. walk through it because you have that ancestral connection there. And, um, you know, in most places in Australia, there are those places, those really powerful, powerful places. But there's so much flux in the young dreaming of the place that you're from that I find myself in like spiritual peril the entire time I'm there. I'm, I'm walking through and I'm like, I could lose myself here. This place could eat me up in a second and not in a good way because I wouldn't get to just, I don't have that ancestral spirit there, so I don't get to just recycle round every third time around like you do and, and that you're in those cycles me it's just like um i don't know i don't know where where i would be going or how i would how i would end up or how i would ever get out of that <laughs> if i got stuck there yeah clarity <laughs> um the the place that you're talking about the place that you introduced is wingina which is sort of up around the, the crate lakes area in the atherton tablelands and yeah. the english names are uh um, Lake Eacham and Lake Barine and also Uramo, which is quite a long way away, but it's still connected to that um, yeah. same sort of, I guess, national park there. But um, those lakes are really important in terms of that volcano story. Yeah. And how that transformation of rainforest actually happened. So there's an incredible sort of fire story and a water story that coexist. That's um, it. Yeah, that whole. But the way, whatever, like the, was it infrared used for that photo? Yes. That place, because it, it just all looks like fire and water and it looks like the end of the world. Yeah. It just, it looks apocalyptic. <laughs> like the, the interesting thing about um, Wingina or Lake Eacham is that it's actually, it's a really tranquil, utterly beautiful place that because it's the water has picked up so much mineral, it's often a turquoise blue. Mm. So um, it's, it's magical in the sense that, and you can walk around it and experience it that way as well, but. Oh, you could go jet skiing on there. Well, I, I think they discourage that. No, it's not, it's not <laughs> a big lake. It's not a big lake. And um, it, it's, it, even swimming is, is, is discouraged just because it's a, it's a Yemeni place. It's a yeah. rainbow um, story that's attached to that. 
And so there are all these sorts of understandings and sensitivities to the landscape, yeah. um, which in a way is, is reflective of the, of, of the delicacy of a lot of that um, flora that's around it. Um, and you know, it's, it's a strong, it's a tough environment, but at the same time, there's that, that fragile beauty and there's a delicate eco balance, if you like. Yeah, that's it. Ah, oh, my goodness. Well, look, I, I actually, um, <clears throat> you know, I'm, I've engaged with this before just from our, our way of, you know, culturally, you know, we have polyangulation, I guess, not triangulation. There's so many things that you're looking at, um, as you were describing before, from temperature to everything else. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought I'd better triangulate from that scientific way for this one. So I thought, you know, so I've, I've, I've asserted that from, from, you know, from what I know that infrared sort of thing is snake eye. And I thought, well, I better look it up from the science side of things as well. So I checked it out and I found out snakes don't see in infrared at first. And I thought, oh, like, so what am I wrong with that? But then when I kept looking that there is a class of snakes that does see in infrared. Oh. And it is, it is the class of snakes, like, so carpet snakes do see in infrared. That's very interesting. The class of I mean, snakes that they belong to. So it's quite unique to yeah. the carpet snake because there's another snake story there too mm. in that place. And that one, that snake doesn't see that way. So yeah, that was, so that for me, that was, um, that was validating to see that. And it was just like, yep, all right. It's another, another data set that I can polyangulate into this thing. Is really? that, uh, yeah. That's very interesting. I mean, but snakes are very heat sensitive anyway, or temperature sensitive in that sense as well. But that, that um, when you, when you were describing the, the photographs as almost being snake high images, hmm. it, it occurred to me almost that, well, yes, you may have this, that physical sort of evidence but it then takes you very quickly mm. into uh, a perception around how how a different world may be viewed from a different set of eyes. Yeah. How how can the world be seen um, beyond the human eye is almost the question. Yeah. And how would that be seen um, by an unearthly set of eyes? Call it, put it that way. Yeah. And what's the movement there? Um, quite often, I when I have gone through and taken photographs of the of the, the rainforest and sort of brought them back and, and looked at them. It, it's often the film that comes to mind sometimes is um, Predator. Mm. And how, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> and how, well, it's just, it's, and it was quite amazing. You know, when you're watching the film and you see the, down. the jungle from the, the, the through the eyes of an alien creature and how there's a whole different range of spectra yeah there's beyond visible light and it was quite interesting for me i mean the film is is kind of interesting you know for, for a number of different reasons but mm. um from that perspective of looking and seeing the environment mm. from you know the point of view of, of something Else, rather than someone else yeah it's quite sort of fascinating well how did how did Arnie protect himself in the end there well it was he um, painted up yeah he, he like he covered himself in the clay mm. 
and then the, right. the thing couldn't see him anymore. No, he did a ceremony. Yeah, he did ceremony. <laughs> and <laughs> what's that ceremony? But, you know, and as, I don't know, in that sort of Western canon, you know, usually as somebody, you know, transforms in the, during in the hero's journey, there's usually some kind of passing through water that happens. Mm. And so he did that in his escape. There was a fall and he passed through water. And then he found, he found that ceremony on the other side, he painted himself up and then uh, the predator couldn't see him. He's like, look around in his infrared. Oh, I can't see him. <laughs> well, that's right. And, and then that's when he yeah. gets busy and, uh, and then they go toe to toe. Big, Ar Big Arnie and the Predator. But um, that, I mean, that film has, has stuck. You are one ugly movie. motherfucker. Well, it was a bit like that. And the thing is that the, the, I think what the reason that stuck with me was the environment. Yeah. I mean, quite apart from, you know, when we were watching it as teenagers, that the action sequences were pretty amazing. But yeah. then over the years, that I've just sort of remembered back more and more into that the ecology of that space, mm. how complex it was and mm. how many different sorts of things there are to be seen from a different kinds of perspective. Well, they had, they had an indigenous character there. Yeah. He was like the first one to die. He was. And he, it seemed Billy, he, was it Billy? So a native American mercenary. And, yeah. Uh, he's, he's, so he's the one who know he can see the invisible mm. thing. He's looking at something else, but we don't get to come into his lens. No, we don't get to see. We see from the alien's point of view, the infrared thing. We see that all the way through. What we don't see is the indigenous point of view and what the hell he's seeing when he's standing there going like, oh, my God, we're all going to die. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, mean, I guess at that time, Hollywood wasn't quite there. Yeah. The and, and they're all like, Billy's, Billy's spooked. Yeah. Something's got Billy spooked. <laughs> Very well, but they they couldn't quite translate it into a, a thing about well, actually, let's look at this through an indigenous lens. Yeah, even briefly. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, anyway, it 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 was quite good to sort of remember and bring up some of those things. Yeah, actually, what I have found as well, and sort of um, jumping to one side, I guess, almost from that conversation, is the interesting nature of or commentary around life and mm. death in the forest and that that idea of cycles of mortality mm. um and so it, in that space it's quite easy to sort of move into almost like a, a way of thinking around the memento mori mm. around you know the fact that this is a place of incredible life force of incredible life mm. but at the same time the mortality is very present it is um, in that in that cycle of regeneration and so to then begin to contemplate as well some of those as you say those larger cycles over time is really interesting and i uh, the, the the idea of, of quantum time mm. and the way temporality can then be understood through timelessness mm. and it's very important as well i i i'm still in predator <laughs> i'm still in predator and the perspectives we didn't see so there was there was a woman who was actually there and was from that jungle yeah she was pretty much the only one who survived <laughs> out at the end and but we we never saw her point of view we no. saw her fear from the outside but we never we never saw her lens either 
But then when we get back to lenses, there's one fella that, and there's that famous line. So there's the, the, the a black fella that's hiding under the log, the baldy fella. And he says, and he has that line because he's, he ends up, he stops and he waits patiently and hides. And then finally he's there and he goes, I see you. And so he sees the, sees a predator. There. <laughs> yeah. But we're not sure. Yeah. And I think it's somehow there's that stillness that he does. I guess he's exhibiting a predatory behavior by lying in wait there. And so somehow that, that lens allows him to see the predator. But you know what he's not seeing still is the jungle. Mm. And I guess the only two characters that actually saw the jungle were the Native American fella and the woman who was from that jungle. Mm. And we never really get any insight into what their lens is. Anyway, that's the end of that film review. We, we're going to have to get away from that because I could do that. That could be a two hours in, in itself for me. It, 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 is a, it is a fascinating film. I mean, for mm. you know, all the reasons in the, in the storyline. But also for those things which are kind of overlooked or unexplored, and I guess wouldn't have really helped the narrative of a Hollywood sort of blockbuster as it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Anyway, look. That being said, um, I'm. If, what I was going to hopefully sort of touch on with you as well was the idea of um, everywhere. Everywhere, quantum time, mm. the past, present, and future, mm. and it's I'm I find it really quite interesting um, how in acknowledgements of country, when people are speaking publicly, there is that acknowledgement of elders, past, present, and emerging. Yeah, and so there's it's almost like a um, an like a, a tacit acknowledgement of that, that passage of time and intergenerational knowledge and presence. Mm. Um, and so with, with imagery as well, I guess what I'm trying, how I'm trying, trying to tie that in is that imagery has that almost like a, a time traveling quality mm. with archival images, but also I'm, I'm pretty fascinated with the way that photographs are very, bound up with a conversation around light mm. and the fact that the light for any photograph or the, what we're seeing now in the world um, can take up to 100,000 years mm. to get from the sun to the earth simply because um, photons bounce around in the sun for a very long time mm. before they escape for eight minutes and then reach earth. So we're looking with with photographs and in some ways it's it's quite evocative with archival imagery because it has that it's almost authenticated by being old yeah um there's a, a really kind of remarkable kind of awareness around them if you think about light that these objects have come to us and light has come to us which is very it's just ancient in itself you um, can see dead stars as if they're still living yeah, that's right. You know, we're seeing stars in the sky that no longer exist. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's yeah sort of from one temporal right. point of view, anyway. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> a billion, a billion years behind the time. Yeah. yeah. 
And so with with light, I guess this this goes into this a conversation too around morality as well. And how when you begin to sort of stack up everything that kind of makes our reality invisible, there's oh, that's, it's quite mysterious and perhaps more so than um, simply you know reading the, the everyday world as a physical kind of text or environment might suggest you know that time and space almost when you begin to think about it that way become very flexible in the sense that what arrives here is ancient what we're seeing from the recent past is illuminated mm. by something that's ancient mm. um, photographs in that sense i find have a particular power this applies mm. to anything really whether it's objects or image mm. um, that has come to us there's a there's a kind of resonance about that which is quite special and quite mystical in some ways as well mm. there's a um there's an ar and vr fellow in australia he's, he's american um i can't remember his first name but pesh is his surname uh, pesh like fish in italian kind of thing anyway um he's an american ar vr person and it's very interesting his what he sees when there's an acknowledgement of country or a welcome to country yeah, he sees that in augmented reality terms. So he's seeing the buildings and the contemporary infrastructure, you know, of the colony that's here. But like, there's this overlay of time there. It's like, oh my goodness, there's this, uh, there's this other time here. It's like there's a time stamp on all of these buildings of what that was built on. And so, you know, that, that the, the, the violence of frontier conflicts is still present, you know, in these buildings. But then also there's a deep time, you know, that acknowledgement of these other lands of the cooler nations, you know, that he sees. He's like, you know, there is deep time, um, you know, kind of, you know, <laughs> over the top of all this. So he sort of sees he sees that in augmented reality terms and in, 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 in virtual reality terms, because that's his lens, you know. Um, but yeah, he's he's very much engaging those those layers of time in the way he's developing. He's one of the world leaders in that technology, and wow. so you know, in developing all of that, he's heavily influenced by um, his engagement with um, Aboriginal Australia, <laughs> and he's also a, a Wiccan, so he's one of those witches. You know, so he's kind of like quite open <laughs> to a lot of those ideas. Um, yeah, yeah well, as well. I, when you were talking about that, it, it kind of occurred to me as well that there is almost a way of talking about it as an archaeology of time. Yeah. Also an archaeology of memory as well. And in a way, understanding those layers and that complexity of worlds over time that have become sort of almost embedded with one another and built up over like sediment yeah. on another almost. There's a, it's, I find the experience of research then is actually you're, 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 you're removing each kind of layer and almost embedding yourself in there as well mm. to actually be able to read the story. And, and I think this is probably a common sort of experience for all researchers where yeah. you begin to then contextualize and piece together and the, that the research becomes almost four-dimensional yeah. because you then deal with time perhaps in a very different way. And we may have a particular 
perception around that, mm. particularly as um, you know, we acknowledge timelessness as well in that sense. So bringing together archival imagery as I do with the photographs that I'm taking now is almost a, a, a strategy. It's almost like a, a methodology of collapsing time by saying this is actually all present. Yeah. This, this is the idea around past, present, future being simultaneously here. Yeah. And that's that's my understanding of the quantum of time. Yeah. Um, so through the imagery and bringing stuff to get, bringing um, things together, bringing um, landscape, people, um, the kind of research and history around all of those things, you have like a, a physical compression which is the photographs, but then you have the narrative and the relationship and the story around memory, which then builds um, in that, around that, and with that as part of mm. the story that unfolds. And so what in fact you have conceptually and theoretically is almost this bolus or a, a body of, of knowledge that is both material um, but is also at the same time um, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, and cultural. Mm. Well, you so you're living in this sort of this quantum sort of uh, collapsed time, but you're also engaging with the marketplace and with a, a very different reality that's so thoroughly grounded in the second law of thermodynamics that time you must be living and i mean in order for us to have this zoom meeting today you know we've had to be living on that arrow of time and you and i both are spending most of most of our days in that at the same time as belonging to this other time um i find it difficult so i mean we get at least a third of our life out of that when we're asleep yeah. I mean, well, not me, because I've got I've got small kids, so I don't. It's not a third; it's about an eighth. But um, yeah, so there's that. But then you mentioned before when you're walking on country, when you're walking in the jungle. I mean, that's to me. As you're walking, you're walking in that, uh, or you're in story. You're in story place. Mm. You know, and so you're in story time, which is um, you know, a very different time. And your cognition, I think, we didn't get to that either. We'll get to, back to that. But here I'm going off on another rabbit hole. Is our cognition as a species is bound up with walking. You know, where as much, I don't know, what would you call it? Homo ambulance as much as, you know, homo sapiens. You know, um, you know, our thinking is bound up with our walking as well and how we walk country in place and in story. So, you know, so you're there, you, you're walking in that place with your camera and you're in that time, you're inhabiting that, that, that particular quantum reality mm. and you're bringing images back into a marketplace that's bound up in that second law, in yeah. that arrow of time. And yeah. what, what do you think happens? Are you, is this a ritual magic you're doing? Do you feel like, <laughs> do you feel like in some ways you're, um, you are you are breaking the boundaries the membranes around these enclosures that create these vacuums that create this entropy that creates this arrow of time are you complexifying that space are you opening the boundaries of that space and breaking the dam wall and letting all of this 
big quantum of first law time, first law of thermodynamics just kind of flood in <laughs> through people's eyeballs and mess with their heads. Well, in, in some ways, bringing, bringing something back to the world of the visible is the job of the artist. Ah. But what I'm, what I'm kind of in a way doing, um, firstly, that space up there is, as you say, has a young history in terms of its landscape, mm. but it also has a relatively young history in terms of colonialism. Mm. So Cairns and those cities there were really only formally settled, if you like, or founded mm. in um, you know, so 1870. Mm. It's not that long ago. Yeah. And so when you do walk that landscape, um, you're keenly aware of the fact that there are, it's almost like the, the ghost of recent history is very present. Yeah, so it's very walking, recent. Walking. But your, your work is almost like augmented reality in that time frame. Of, uh, you've got these echoes, mm. these ripples that are parallel and very close together. You, um, you're working in that space in between those, so they're both apparent, especially in your earlier work and your sculpture, you know, where you were taking a lot of symbology from uh, colonization and, and uh, Australian Federation even, and um, you're bringing those very uncomfortably, <laughs> I thought, into relation with, uh, with indigenous symbology and uh, symbology from the landscape. Yes, that's right. And that was very much around the experience of walking. Um, so that the mapping that I was sort of using in some of that early sculptural work were the areas that I had actually walked. And so it made sense with, you know, when I began to use uh, in one strand of the work, geological survey maps, it made sense to talk about what was actually underneath the surface of the earth and to get an understanding of how, well, look, this is how these are different cultural lenses mm. of reading different things that are in the, in the environment. Yeah. Um, when it comes to, I guess, different instruments of talking about history or even the creation of imagery, I found photography to be one of the a very potent sort of tool. Mm. Um, because when Northern Queensland was being, you know, colonised and a lot of the landscape and country was being transformed through mining, agriculture, um, through building and architecture. This time, or that particular time, was when photography had developed enough such that it could be recorded. So the difference in the development of Northern Queensland historically to say areas like um, down South Melbourne or Sydney, for example, there were photographers present in North Queensland taking photographs that history unfolding yeah so it was documented in a really kind of interesting and different way from other parts of Australia I think and what that began to show was that photography became a very important tool mm. for um in a sense showing if you like the progress or industrial progress yeah um and it also became a tool as we know for documenting what was believed to be the passing of Aboriginal people. Yeah. And so photography has that sort of very profound kind of theoretical, but also 
almost magical reading of, of pausing time, of stopping death, even just for a moment. Mm. And so there was this, there was this act of preservation, not just preservation of memory, but this idea around preservation of people. Um, and so I find that quite fascinating because I have a deep love of photography and the photographic image. Some of those um, readings around that are, are quite complex to navigate in some ways because the photograph, photography has such an important role or it has had such an important role in documenting history, um, but also experience. But at the same time, um, the lens and the gaze, as we know from um, photographic history, can be quite a domineering thing. The, photo, the camera was in the hands of, you know, the people who are settling, who are colonizing, who are transforming. And so there was a particular perception and almost uh, in some ways, a one-sided view, if you like, both of the land, but also of people as well. The narrative was controlled through the lens and the editing and the cropping and what was spoken about in relation to those, Im to those images. Mm. Oh, brings me back to Predator again. <laughs> um, how, how much we, we see in that movie from the lens of this alien yeah. being it's um you know it's what's your lens there you're either arnie or you're the the predator <laughs> in well, the end and and this is true it's kind of interesting it, it does bring up all of those um those i would call it sort of fears and anxieties yeah around being colonized yeah but there's also that that I mean, there's that longing and that fascination because I mean, you know, I mean, it's really only been a century uh, since most of the people on the planet were still quite embedded, you know, just for their living. They were quite embedded in their landscape wherever they were. And it's only been a century really since this e experiment of nations and nation states. Yeah. You know, has um has really sort of taken things over and moved people out of the landscape. Land is capital and is to be enclosed uh, with li limit limited flows. You know, in order to create these sort of you know entropic kind of spaces where where things cannot flow through in the landscape. You know that that's been a very short time. So I think people, yeah. but people are kind of longing for a return. I think so. People are people would be more interested to know what that Native American's lens was in that film. They'd, they'd like to know what he was seeing, not this imagined alien and not this uh, hero on his hero's journey. You know, they're just like, oh, so the first fellow that died, I'd actually be interested to know what he was seeing because he was looking around. He didn't, he couldn't see through the invisibility camouflage of that alien what he was seeing was the entire system around him and the way there was a wrongness with it. He could see that there was something out of place and that that was having a knock-on effect through the system. You yeah. know, so he was getting that polyangulation happening of being able to go, okay, there's something there and I can't see it, and but I know it sees me. This is going to go badly. <laughs> you know, but I think people would, be able, would like to be able to have that lens that complexity lens to be able to look at the systems around them and understand the structure of those systems in such a way that they could see what was there that is invisible. 
you know, in the same way that you know <clears throat> that there is some kind of body or matter celestially in, in one place because you can observe its effects on the stars or on the bodies around it. And that that's how our old people saw third, fourth magnitude stars that are invisible to the eye. But we had names for those stars, although you couldn't see them, you know. And in that same way that uh, these physicists now, were, I mean, you know, just in the last half a century, were able to say, well, black holes exist. Mathematically, there are black holes. All of these things point to the existence of black holes. We haven't seen one, <laughs> but we know it's there. You know, and I think uh, people are interested in that kind of that kind of complexity lens, that way right. of being able to see yeah. a system and know when something's out of place or when something's certainly there or happening or has happened or will happen. And that messes with your view of time, that lens, but because you can see that... a convergence over time yeah. in this time place that indicates an event. The, um, that you wouldn't otherwise perceive the imaging though that comes from the the messier black hole the one that quite amazing imaging has come from what you what you've just said is like a, a multiplicity of views so you couldn't actually see that from one um radio telescope or one yeah you know, hubble camera it had to be that's an it ray had so to be many angles up, yeah there's this, this incredible almost construct of what is but in in some ways that it actually it's quite it's profoundly symbolic too of yeah ways that the world is seen and yeah the ways that the world is read and spoken about as well um there's this kind of interesting openness and expansion about yeah. looking and then interpreting yeah and then being able to accommodate different kinds of either cultural lenses or perspectives an interpretation of, of what's in front of it. It was quite sort of fascinating to see how that image of the black hole actually came about. So what you're asking for is a uh, remake of the film Predator <laughs> with I a number of be. different lenses, not just the uh, <laughs> well, it'll be, it'll not be just be. the cinematographer and the alien, but also it would be good to see POV from the the local woman who's native to that jungle. It would be good to see her perspective. Oh. It would also be good to see the uh, the Native Americans' viewpoint on that, mm. and then also the fellow who decided to hide under the log and wait. Yeah, yeah. The um the interesting thing about that, of course, is that there are all the people that don't appear in the film who have, ah, also, who have yeah. also seen who are quietly uh, there <laughs> over the years. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> there's, there's people who live in the forest yeah. who understand that this is a repeat visitor. Yeah. How do we accommodate this repeat visitor in our what now? People in the forest? Isn't that wilderness? Yeah, that's something. Isn't that's that like, untouched wilderness, Danny? It's pristine. Under yeah, it's empty. Yeah. Untouched by the foot of man. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I, well, talking about seeing, this is one thing I touched on very briefly with you. And this I probably relates to sort of future making and what I'm sort of thinking about now in terms of light time and projection was that i'm i'm mean, i showed you those images where i'm running projectors simultaneously and bringing images together literally oh yeah but then photographing that so in a kind of way i'm i'm not working with images i'm working with light 
mm. um, which sounds quite abstract and in some ways you can go well it's still an image um, it's not just light but in fact there's a there's a whole it's like a, a symbolic act yeah. of selecting images and then bringing them together um, into one into one plane from that radio plane. telescope around well it, it kind of it kind of is when you think about you know you're the photographing something that's yeah. very abstract it's a combination of yeah. light that we translate as images which is then received in the sensor of a camera yeah and then again run through a computer and then finally printed onto photographic paper this is yeah. kind of this is an interesting process i find it's fascinating yeah we go through this whole thing of research thinking exploring oh, it's, it's it's an image of what it's an image of what many sort of interactions of light have done with images of images of images yes that's right yeah, yeah. It's, it's a kind of re-photography 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 yeah nice not yeah. reef photography <laughs> as as often happens in in the, in the north yes yeah but no re-photography yeah where yeah, but in a sense i'm i'm selecting and editing in some in, in other ways photographers or when you take a photograph you are in a way kind of controlling the world yeah and you're controlling the world through the image i mean you know and it's a fairly localized kind of control yeah but it's it's interesting to think through that as an artist and then to go through that whole almost like haptic experience of, of physically bringing things together and, and projecting and photographing and thinking through how you're cropping and editing and the lighting and all that sort of thing. So there's this really interesting process, which is quite abstract in the sense that those most recent ones and what has brought it about is the, the restrictions that we faced um, given the, the border closures and those sorts of things where I can't travel freely. Um, so it means that you're finding different ways to get back into that environment. So rather than physically moving through the, the space of a rainforest or um, you know across different terrain and country, um, I'm finding ways to then go through that catalogue of images that I have, both archival mm. ones that I've taken and then bringing them together Mm. it's like that uh polyangulation that i was talking about before instead yeah. of triangulation so yeah, many so many data sets you're working from that's right um and seen and unseen well quite often that's exactly right and it's how well there's a, a very harmonious kind of um bringing together both of, of history of cultural perspectives but also imagery um which is and it makes it it makes it easy to sort of almost dive into almost this well of knowledge almost so yeah what is held in the imagery is a kind of a, a cultural memory mm. it's also as we sort of if we cycle back to what we were talking about at the start the shape of memory as well because mm. i'm making decisions about how to present different kinds of things and and making aesthetic and artistic decisions about you know the landscape or the material culture or those kinds of things which are shown in the photographs. So it becomes a really interesting exercise. And it's um, it's quite, going back to that idea of projecting images and then photographing them, um, it becomes quite abstract in a sense that, yes, you're just dealing with light, but you're also uh, dealing with things that don't exist other than digitally and then become mm. manifested in corporeal. Um, but I'm also going to 
revisit those things as well with um, you know older archi archival sort of processes that go yeah. back to chemical production and those sorts of things. Well, you don't you don't call these things landscapes. It's you you are got a placeholder sort of word of land space. Land space, yes. You know, and space there also means time. It's just bound up with it, you know, intimately. Because this is more than just a, a perspective. This is, um, you know, it's a, it's a method of inquiry as well. And so when you're in that sort of quantum view of time, it's, um, you know, you're not just remembering the past. Mm. It's, you know, there's potential there for remembering the future. Because if you're seeing, if you're seeing that entire system, then you're seeing what it's doing, but where it's going, where it's been, everything. Yeah, you know it's funny when we talk. When you said reef photography before, and I thought, "Haha, reef photography." It made me think of you know ten years ago, you know when it was sort of announced that the the Great Barrier Reef would be dead and finished in five years. All the scientists were saying, and it was on the front page of every newspaper. And like you know, I'm, I'm talking to the old people there. Cairns, I'm oh, uncle. The reef's dying, and they're like, "No, she'd be right. You're right." right to come back come back around here right <laughs> you know and i'm like what <laughs> no no it i'm sorry but because science look look it's getting bleached it's finished it's like no you're right and then you know 10 years later down the track i'm like oh okay the reef didn't die yet uh, it, yeah it's it, it is interesting because those fellows are living in a different model of time and they're um and their method of inquiry is quite different you know, they're looking at something and, and actually saving the reef isn't a priority right now because uh, it's, it's actually doing okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a different kind of perspective around time. Mm. Well, um, and the way that environments have changed over time and yeah. the oral histories that are connected with that, that plays a really sort of fundamental. Well, and the dreaming, because this brings it back, if you're looking at the reef, they you're also bringing it back to that carpet snake uh dreaming that goes right down and this is something that it's funny i couldn't believe it when you contacted me because i've been very kind of deeply engaged with carpet snake stuff lately um, yeah you know uh with a colleague who's from the bunya mountains there and you know he he's got song cycles from around that place and you know he's got a lot of cultural roles in the sort of mimbri there those increase increased sites, story places for um, for carpet snake dreaming, yeah. you know, and there's been stuff that we've been working on there uh, with all kinds of things from economics to governance models, uh, trade, you know, uh, protocols of embassy, all these kinds of things coming out of that dreaming. Mm -hmm. And I have a dream, you know, and it was like a, a fresh snake skin in water uh, from that from that carpet snake. And it bothered me, the dream, like it was disturbing. I woke up before it was finished because it was, uh, the snake skin was moving slightly in the water in a way that really deeply disturbed me. It's still sitting with me now. Mm. Anyway, he's talking me through that right now. But then, um, you know, a couple of days after I had that dream, he contacted me and said, let's, let's have a yarn, write a paper. And so here we are. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, there are lots of different connections out there. Um, you begin to realise that with research, there, there certainly are, and with those stories, 
um, it comes down to yeah this this notion of, of memory and they are what well, I was going to talk before about oral history so there's yeah those stories are still very present and in a sense um, very much in consciousness when it comes to understanding country and to use mm. the, that word that I have used before land space um, there's a different kind of groundedness to that word and to, to knowledge as well that there, there aren't any sort of sharp corners. Things mm. have it, they fit together and things are osmotic. Mm. So to have a, a land space or a, a culture that has an oral history, mm. um, there's a certain kind of almost like um, blending and sharing that happens around knowledge, mm. also experience as well. And so that, that transmission of experience from generation to generation, mm. something which becomes deeply embedded yeah well and then that all those layers you have so many wheels within wheels you know you have the mourning process and and those cycles you know embedded in your work as well with a lot of funerary objects you know and that's um of course cheeky that's the one you sent me i've got it on my wall the one that i didn't get yes. and that i that i couldn't get <laughs> and uh <laughs> And that I described in alien sort of sci-fi terms. It's uh, watching too much predator, see. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm still engaging with that every day and uh, um, uh, deciphering that over time and letting it do its work on me. But it's got that uh, got that funerary object in it. Those, uh, that, well, it's that the basket that is um, and the skull and yeah, those... well, it's disembodied. It's hovering. It's in yeah. the landscape and um, in the land space. And there's that infrared. And there are so many layers in there. I, um, I I have that same feeling of peril that I have when I'm walking through that country. The um, the, and I love it. The jar one, the baskets, the woven baskets, they were quite incredible because they were used ceremonially, but also yeah, everyday as everyday quotidian objects as well. Yeah, so there's a they're they're quite a they're profoundly symbolic in the sense that they are like a singular object. They cover a whole lots of range of functions in life yeah. but also death and so bones and um you know prepared bodies would would remain in those baskets mm. um as really sort of an important sort of resting place mm. and so i find and they're quite often hung in trees mm. so part of i guess that what was like an artistic interpretation around that was how to think about to show the significance of that basket and to, to have that floating in that environment mm. seemed to make sense. And um, there was a quite an incredible charcoal drawing, I think it was by French artist Odilon Redon. And what it is, it's a, it's a hot air balloon, but the hot air balloon is an eye. Oh. Or, or it's a floating eye in the sky. Somehow I, I'm seemed, I'm remembering it as a as a as a as a balloon. Perhaps it, it wasn't, but anyway, it was it's this creepy. Eye. Yeah, it was very surreal, the floating through the sky. So it was a gentle scene, but it was quite um, shocking in, in some ways. And so my thinking around that environment, the rainforest, is how to actively interpret and work with those really important material culture objects, those funerary objects and so on. Mm. And when we, when we think about, if you remember that big sort of landscape, land space, land story, where you it was very much an encounter with a multi-panel work mm. gallery and that idea of absorbing you almost 
yeah which was very sort of important consideration for me but then that last panel that went around the corner with how you installed it mm. that was the thing for me as well yeah right it forces you to take a different angle looking across the rest and going there and gives you that idea that there are things unseen yeah um you know that you can only see from one angle or you know there might be restricted knowledge that maybe you're not supposed to see as well there's so much hidden you know in your work sometimes i feel like like there's been that couple of times when i'm i don't know you must be satisfied with my thinking around it and that i've <laughs> understood enough and you'll send you'll you'll say hey look at uh Look at number 67 up in the top left. <laughs> I'll go back and look and I'll be like, what? What's he talking? Well, oh my God, there it is. Oh, oh my goodness. But in many ways too, it's, it's I, you know, there are things for me to discover. I mean, yeah. the process that I've gone through with making the images. Well, it's not just you making them. No, that's it's right. It's all it's, your old people working through you and they got surprises for you every day. So it's kind of it's an, well, it's an it's an unfolding story, and so yeah. one of those things where um, the image has a certain power at the yeah. time of making, but at the same time, because you're bringing strands of history and, and narrative together, it's absolutely inevitable mm. they will continue to sort of unfold in the future as well. And this this comes back to that idea of um, uh, temporality and timelessness, yeah. where nothing is simply bound and captured as is sometimes written about photographs nothing is bound and captured in an instant um it has its own life and it time travels and uh, time travels according to the way that we see it and read it and receive it in at different points in history after it's been made time travels only possible uh, if you're inhabiting the arrow of time too mm. which is funny but um you know in those moments where you can bring together bring together that uh that bigger first law time um and the other one it's a it's a bit of a superpower sometimes i think uh yeah so there we are danny mellor the time traveler's wife's husband <laughs> making things happen with image <laughs> well that's yeah. i look I, I let this run right up to the last possible minute um, yeah, before this you. next thing that i'm supposed to be in on and i'm now late but i, I tell you what <laughs> we're to be continued brother i think so <laughs> I think there'll be more to talk about. Thanks, Tom. Oh yeah, yeah. We got we got uh, old universes to explore here. Um, yeah, beautiful stuff. Thank you, Brad. I look forward to it. You too. Yeah. All right. All right. Bye -bye. You take care. Yeah. Same.